Meredith Monday. Thanks for joining us. Chris, how's it going? It's going well, Mike. How are you? Good. Just finished preaching and in my usual zone. Just uh, smoked some of my vanilla, whatever that stuff is called. Um, <laughs> can't, can't find my tin now. Keep forgetting its name. <laughs> so that's not very helpful to anyone listening. Apologies. <laughs> uh, it's vanilla. <laughs> and that's all you need to know. Uh, but man, there's something about the after, the after Sunday sermon smoke. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. particularly mellow. Yeah. Um, but other than that, you know, just working through your book a little bit. What I'm excited to keep going. I, uh, we, we finished off, if anyone is um, tracking with this and started off with this last week, but we're looking at covenant theology, uh, the, uh, the, the covenant theology of Meredith Klein, but via Chris's very helpful book. And I keep on remembering how helpful it is. Um, as I said last week, it's just, I remember, you know, just being so impressed by the way that you're, you're really bringing people along in that. But it's just great because it's also, you know, exactly what Klein taught, essentially distilled for us. And, um, and so uh, with, the, with the solid focus on justification and just how that works in light of covenant theology. Um, so it's a great book to be looking at. And we started off looking at that last week. If you are interested, go check that out. Uh, just do a little reverse and go and find that. Um, we really only defined covenant and started to encroach on the definitions of grace. Um, but we kind of jumped over this little bit of eschatology that you got going on in chapter one. So the big question, Chris, is what on earth are you talking about eschatology for in the first chapter of the book and not the last <laughs> chapter? That's the end stuff. That's what we're talking about Israel at that point. End times, locusts, helicopters, nuclear disasters, <laughs> seven-year tribulation periods. What's going on? I'm confused. Exactly. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the church background that I grew up in where eschatology was just about end times and it was all very weird and strange hmm. but um what i learned about eschatology from meredith klein is that we encounter it in genesis 1 1 um, yeah. that in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and that that word heavens can refer to both the visible heavens that we see when we go outside maybe out outside of the city where we can look up and see the starry sky that would be the visible heavens but then the invisible heavens mm. is what we think of when we talk about heaven. Yeah. Um, and so it's been there since the beginning. Mm. It's where God sat down and rested on the seventh day and where we hope to uh, join him. Uh, and I don't mean hope in the, gosh, I hope it works out that way, but yeah. hope as in thank you that Jesus accomplished this for us. Mm -hmm. uh, we hope to join God in that. Uh, Sabbath rest when uh, Jesus comes to uh, bring about final judgment and to uh, take us to that ultimate mm. heavenly kingdom. Man, so awesome. And so it feels now looking back on that, just so obvious, you know, there, <laughs> obviously right. it's, it's all about, I mean, it's there already, you know, I mean, what else has God, I mean, God must have made everything at that point and essentially the whole point of the Bible is to introduce God to us and tell us where he is and how we get to him. And, you know, it's just, yeah, eschatology is there right from the beginning. It's very important to, to get that. Um, I mean, I suppose we have talked about a little bit with, um, you know, the two regs, the cosmology thing and, um, 
and even the framework theory. But, but um, I mean, just at a simple kind of level where we want to understand how the whole Bible fits together, it is important to see that, you know, it's, we're not only thinking about heaven at the end. Um, and really, this is the goal for humanity, which I know would confuse a lot of people um, because they don't even tend to think about any probationary period. Or maybe they, they understand that Adam failed in some way. Um, and but they wouldn't. I don't think anyone from a non-reformed background would think that Adam had lost his up. Or if he had not um, failed, would it would have would have uh, entered into a glorified state? You know that that was um, that was something that I had heard for the first time coming into uh, covenant theology and reformed theology. I don't know if you had encountered that at any time before. No. No, yeah, it was brand new. So that's kind of the 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 whole new paradigm that I think people uh, would have to just get their heads around, and uh, certainly that fits in here you know, with what we're saying right at the very beginning. Um, there's eschatology, and so maybe just worth highlighting that point in case you are feeling like, what are we even talking about? Listening to this, um, you know, just just consider that's a that's this paradigm that we're going to break down again and again in this book, but it's it's this idea that that um, the uh, the goal of heaven was really held out uh, to Adam even even prior to the fall, which is um, just insane. Um, but you you uh, mentioned uh, Dr. Lane Tipton's in here, by the way. Did you know that? <laughs> I did know that. Um, oh, man, he's the he's the bad guy in Star Wars. The guy that started off good and went bad. <laughs> Anakin, that's right. <laughs> he's Anakin. I was like, what's Anakin doing in your book? No, he's he's good. He's really good. He's super sharp. Wow. And that's, I suppose, why he was the dude. Um, but man, uh, it's just a bummer every time. I, every time he told he, me, that. yeah, he had not broken my heart when I wrote this book. <laughs> so, yeah. Is that right? So he would yeah. not be if you had to rewrite this now. He would not be in there. Uh, you know, just a little stab, just a little. Hey, get out of my book, Tipton. <laughs> if you want to go, Anakin? That's fine, but you're not going to be in my book. What I've included here, I think, is really helpful. So I probably would have to keep it in. But oh, man. It is good. I like what he said. But, you know, mm-hmm. it would be better if he said it without without going all rogue afterwards. Yeah. Um, but he says, yeah, number one, um, these are ways in which we can consider biblical eschatology uh, in the beginning. The eternal reality of uh, the kingdom paradise, which God promised to Adam in the covenant of works, which really you break down at length in the next chapter. So we'll kind of save that. Um Secondly, the immutable or unchangeable state of perfect life in the presence of God. What does he mean by that? So, uh, what he means there, I think, is what we tend to think of as our state of glorification. How when uh, Christ takes us to be with himself, uh, when he comes a second and last time, Mm. we will not be able to sin any longer. And that's one of the... Uh, most profound things about Mm. the final state for us. Mm -hmm. So it's immutable in the sense that we can't fall again um, and we will be uh, holy and righteous and as Lane finishes that off, in the presence of God. Yeah, all right. Good, so that that Thomas Boston, people might have heard that, the full, full, full state of man, and that final goal is essentially held out before Adam, which is our goal as well, essentially, right? Right. Okay. Thirdly, the heavenly goal of the promised kingdom under the covenant of works. Um, good. That's fairly self-explanatory. And the final stage of the kingdom of God. All sort of nuances of the same idea there. 
Um, so yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that just helps gear us into thinking about the way in which um, the kingdom of God is, or at least the eschatology is present. Um, even just the whole, as you mentioned earlier, the Sabbath day thing, you know, just that I love the way, I love the way it just like doesn't talk about the morning and the evening on the seventh day. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so no matter where you're coming from, if it's a framework thing or not, you've just got something to think about there. Um, what is that seventh day and what's going on? And, you know, and then of course Hebrews picks that up and talks about that as the very thing that we fail to enter in and that Christ brings us into. And so there you have it. Um, even before you get through um, those first two chapters of Genesis, it's already uh, super, super important. Um, okay, cool. So that means uh, eschatology is there. We're going to play that out as we go. Uh, in terms of, um, we've done defin- definition of covenant. Um, uh, we've, we've encroached on definition of grace, but there's definition of justice and works. I can't remember if we dealt with that properly last time. Maybe we should just say a few things about that. Um, why is it important to, uh, define justice as well as, um, covenant? Well, because, uh, some very important covenants operate on the principle of justice mm-hmm. and, um, not only Norman Shepherd, but also I think dispensationalists as well mm. um, tend yeah, to run into trouble when they blur the lines between justice and grace, mm. um, because then, um, yeah, it's just it's confusing and there's no good news when you do that. Mm. Um, mm. Totally. So you've you've said yeah, um, the principle of justice is simple: you get what you deserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is great because, um, again, that's it's going to be super important in understanding the covenant of works. But already, you know, even just on, on a justification Christianity sort of sense, I mean, you know that because of what Adam did wrong or because of what we've done wrong in Adam, um, at the end of the day, we're going to get what we deserve, which we know is not heaven. And um, and so that, that resonates deeply with what everyone kind of understands anyway. Um, it's just that we want to relate that concept to um, to the covenants and why, and, and show why, if if you don't keep this distinction or definition clear, you end up, uh, as you've just said, sort of uh, actually blending uh, grace and works or um, law and grace, I should say. Um, yeah. You you mentioned that um, um, if, if this sort of lays a foundation, let me just try and find out where you said that. Um, I just want to get your wording. But something to the effect that it lays a foundation. If you don't understand this this whole idea of justice, you're not going to understand why it's significant that Christ did what he did. Um, ah, here we go. Found it. You say, These specific instances of covenants based upon God's justice and human works, especially the covenant of creation, provide the foundation or skeleton for the covenants based upon God's free grace. That's what I was trying to get at very badly. Mm. Uh, the reason for this is simple. God did not stop being God even when Adam fell. He did not even stop being God when he began to covenantly relate to his people on the basis of free grace. And I know a lot of people would be like, what? Hang on. What, you know, what's even going on there? But this is everything right here. I mean, if you don't get this, you don't get what the cross is all about. Right. Um, God was still just. Uh, thus, if God told Adam that heaven must be earned by his obedience, then even after the fall, Heaven must still be earned by someone's obedience, even if fallen man could not earn it himself. 
that's absolutely huge. That is the whole point. And so even in the covenant of grace, it's not that God is saying, yeah, you know what? Don't worry about it. We'll we'll figure something out. Mm. No, he he's saying, um, I am worried about it, but I'm going to solve the problem myself. I'm going to send my own son to bear the, the just punishment that you deserve. Mm. Mm. So, so God's justice still gets satisfied, but to us, it's completely free and it's gracious. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of my favorite provocative sermon titles is that we are saved by works. And then like a little, you know, dash, the works of another. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so cliche in reform circles. But, you know, you never, you never know. You might find that first guy, <laughs> that first timer, who, who's never, who's never <laughs> sat under that sermon a million times. And it's just like, what? yeah, he's like, what? Groundbreaking. Um, but it's so, it's everything, you know. And all of a sudden the cross, see, the thing is, you, you are kind of prey to, um, and really this is, uh, we spoke about Islam on, on, on the show a while back. You know, where you've got Allah that just basically goes, you know what, as long as you tip the scales, we're good, and uh, I'll give you grace. And mm. the problem with that is it just sort of backlashes onto the lack of justice that this, you know, that you can't just do that. You can't sweep it under the rug. And um, to, to understand that God is just and therefore requires uh, that, that same sort of paradigm that, that was set up in the middle, uh, in the beginning at least, uh, is is absolutely key, and it just ma- it means the cross makes sense. It means that you understand uh, what you're walking in in grace, and uh, and I think a lot of theological strands are held together that way as well. But um, with with moving uh, forward, you get into grace, and then this is where we kind of jumped forward last time. But just again, I mean, what are you saying in this chapter or, or in this section on grace? What's the big thing to get? We're talking about Cameron. We're talking about Bob. We're talking about Chevy's. Uh, what, what's the idea? <laughs> That grace, again, is not God uh, ignoring his justice or overlooking it, but um, it is that in spite of the fact that we violated God's justice, he's still going to uh, give us the ultimate reward of heaven because he himself is going to satisfy his justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so grace and i mean one of the concepts that i unpack in that section on justice is mm-hmm. the whole idea of merit mm-hmm. and um uh, i think we all intuitively get the concept of merit because we mm-hmm. know what it's like to earn something mm-hmm. even as children um and so grace is this idea that even though we have forfeited god's blessing by our disobedience and by Adam's disobedience, God is going to give it to us anyway, free to us, but at great cost to himself. Mm-hmm, totally. And one of the things you say, which I think is huge, is while justice requires merit, grace requires demerit. I think mm-hmm. if you get that statement, you'll be kept safe from all of that monocovenantal nonsense and you know um, any sort of mixture of grace and works, really, because you'll understand what it requires for the concept of grace to be present. Yeah, so if there if Adam hadn't sinned, yeah. there would be no need for God's grace. Right. Even though there's mean, all the kindness of God and love of God and all those things of God that are present, there, there's something that, that grace is that we must define so as to understand. Absolutely. I was yeah. just about to say that it's not that God would then be mean to Adam. Yeah. Um, it, that's not what we're saying at all. Hmm. Uh, we're, we're saying that um, 
nothing would have changed in terms of uh, God and Adam's relationship that would require punishment, and mm-hmm. so things would have kept going, and it would have looked, in Adam's case, like what we see in terms of what Jesus accomplished. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, so you have to have um, this really, really well nailed down. I mean, later on we get to talk about, you know, the, the grace principle and works principle, how they set you know, as these competing uh, or, or at least uh, antithetical ideas. And it gets, I mean, you, you obviously this idea goes into way complicated territory um, uh, and certainly so in the, the various reform debates out there. But I think what, what I really like about this is is that it, it, it allows someone, I mean, everyone, everything, what I'm hoping will happen is that people hear this and they go, well, I know this, this is good. This is, you know, this is, I mean, this is the gospel. This is mm-hmm. exactly what I believe grace is and what I believe works is and, 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 you know, how it all works. So we're not saying anything overly technical. You're just saying, just remember those things. Remember those, those basic things so that when it does get technical, you don't abandon those basic definitions um, and end up in trouble. Um, and so, you know, we're saying that, that even an unmerited favor uh, is not enough of a concept to define grace. Grace, it's got to be um, as. Um, did Klein come up with the term demerited favor, or was that was that someone else? Yeah, I just uh, lifted that directly from him. Okay, that was Klein. I know Horton uses it all the time as well, and um, and so yeah, just this concept of of you, it's not enough to just say that it was an unmerited favor because if you leave that as the definition, you leave it open to to kind of blending into what we see before the fall because of course in some sense any creature receiving anything from god is unmerited uh, but the fact that it's demerited favor means you, you really can only be dealing something that uh, with something that happened after sin and after the fall and so again you know uh, not to repeat ad nauseum uh, in terms of our recap of last week but that's just a super important idea and um, and definitely will keep us in safe territory as we move on um, all right so Adam's goal, you say, and I'm on page 28, um, that eschatology that we talked about, um, as a creature of this creation, was eternal life in the new creation. And uh, then jumping over to 29, unlike Adam before the fall, uh, we do need the new life of the new creation in order to obey God. So in other words, um, there is something that's changed, although the goal is the same. And we mentioned before that fourfold state is held, you know, that final state is really the, the eschatology. Um, there, is a, there is a change in terms of what it's going to take to get there. Uh, what, are you, what are you getting at there? What's the, what's the big thing? That there was nothing about the way God created Adam that um, required more in order for Adam to obey God. Uh, God gave him everything he needed, and right out of the gate, um, Adam could have obeyed God perfectly. Right, and that's... that's so we don't want to make the mistake of reading our own experience into Adam's. Amen. Yeah. Um, So, we, right out of the gate, I mean, from the point of conception, we're fallen. So we're guilty before God, and we're corrupted in our nature, and so we need... um, the new life of the new creation that Jesus has um, earned himself, that he has in himself, um, we need that in order to obey God. Without that, we would simply want to be God's enemies. Yeah, great. And so we need the we need the new Adam to do what we cannot do for ourselves, and this is all heading towards that, that two-Adam uh, comparison. 
Um, and I like, I like the way you summarized it here. Whereas for Adam, his obedience was the cause and the new creation was the effect for us. Being new creatures in Jesus Christ uh, is the cause and our obedience is the effect. And it's just a great way to kind of, if you wanted to almost graph that out, uh, you see the difference in terms of the way we're now uh, into that final state. But we'll come back uh, to that, no doubt. Um, just quickly to to make sure we get on this thing as well. Uh, we, you know, in talking about the gospel given to Adam, I mean, again, you're into some foreign territory for a lot of people. You know, the gospel's in the new covenant. What are we talking about? Gospel <laughs> being given to Adam. And and uh, hopefully most of the people that listen to this will be kind of on our page. Um, in terms of one of the debates that perhaps is a little closer to home is the covenant of grace terminology. Uh, and whether that's legitimate or whether, you know, we should, in fact, um, call it something else or whatever it is. Um, You mentioned uh, a little bit about this in that we don't see the covenant of grace mentioned anywhere in Scripture, but that doesn't make it any less um, biblical. Right. So it is uh, theological language that we're using to describe what we're seeing in the Bible. And what we're seeing is that from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 on, God is still saving people, um, and yet the the ultimate means of that salvation wouldn't come until Jesus a- arrived on the scene of history. But in Genesis 3.15, God is telling Adam and Eve um, that Jesus would come. He's not using Jesus' name, mm. but yeah. they're trusting in him ahead of time. And I really do think, uh, I don't I don't know why I didn't say it in the book here, but uh, I really do think that when Paul uses the word epangelia mm. in uh, Galatians, especially chapter 3, mm. which translates as um, the promise, mm-hmm. that's, I think, as close as we get to him talking about what we mean by the covenant of grace. Yeah, totally. Amen. I love what, um, who was the... Who is the current Westminster, California uh, dean or principal guy? Oh, you you caught me. Uh, his last name is Kim, but I, I'm oh, not right, sure yeah. what his first and, name is. And what's the first uh, the guy before him? Uh, Dr. Godfrey, Bob Godfrey. I think it was Godfrey. Um, it might have been someone else. But, but I remember he was debating someone or other. I can't remember what it was even about. But I remember it just struck me. He said, just take the word of out, you know, of covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And just see covenant grace. I mean, like, who can right. deny it? You know, who can deny it? And we can fight about the of, you know, and and um, <laughs> whether that's right and whatnot. But at very minimum, I mean, we've got to understand that there is something connected to the new covenant, one hundred percent, and it's the same covenant grace there from the, from the very beginning. So you know, at very minimum, we got to get that. And then I do love what you say. It's just like, hey, we don't have the word imputed righteousness. <laughs> You know, the imputed righteousness mm-hmm. of Christ in, in the Bible or the Trinity or inerrancy. And yet who would deny these things are there? And and so, well, I suppose you would get some that deny uh, those things are there. And that's the point we're making. Uh, that's trouble right there. So, you know, it doesn't have to be there uh, as an expression to be biblical. Um, in terms of justification, we go straight into justification, God's favorable verdict. Um, what's the heartbeat of that section? That um, justification is forensic, meaning that it's it's legal in nature. It is God's declaration uh, to us and about us that we are just and righteous uh, in His courtroom. Mm-hmm. 
and that that is and, and he's doing that based not on our obedience but on Christ's obedience um, and I I even use some ancient technology called a, a checkbook yeah. to <laughs> yeah. illustrate I, I, that it was such a <laughs> I know. This is what we did in accounting when I was in high school. There you I'm go. Like, man, it 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 invokes terror, Chris. We need a new <laughs> analogy because this is like I failed accounting. Oh no! Yes, yeah, so I'm not justified. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I could get it. It was it was there. I mean, like, and I think it makes the 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 point powerfully. Um, do you want to run run us through the checkbook? So. Um, Basically, in your checkbook, you have a category of um, debits or mm-hmm. money that you've spent. Um, you, you have a balance, and so that tells you how much money is left in your account. But um, a necessary category is the category of credit. Mm. Um, not just money going out of the account, but money going into the account. And when we're talking about this in terms of our salvation, obviously, debit uh, is our sin or our demerit mm-hmm. and credit um, c- would also be merit. And so uh, out of the gate, we've got um, an insurmountable amount of demerit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing we can do to to fix that. We have zero credit, uh, zero uh, merit, I'm sorry. Mm. And so our balance is um, so much sin that we're condemned in God's sight. And that's all thanks to Adam. And we only pile on in our own lives by adding our sin to that. Um, but uh, thank God that because of Christ, his death wipes out the the demerit category mm-hmm. so that we've got no demerit. Um, and his perfect life here on earth, where he was obedient to God perfectly every single second of every single day, is credited to us. It's put into our checkbook, so to speak, as a, our own righteousness, although mm. it's coming from Christ, so mm. that our balance is Christ's righteousness, and therefore, on that basis, God declares us righteous or just. Mm. Perfect, yeah. Um, t- just two things there, and, and, and again, what I'm loving about that is just all we're doing is saying, hey, there's justification, there's the gospel, there's Protestant theology, and it forms this uh, absolutely key basis for, for everything that we're going to think about by way of covenant theology. Um, one of the things you say is, Justification is eschatological. In other words, justification always has a view to the ultimate kingdom of God because being declared righteous in God's sight, which is justification, is the condition that must be met in order to enter that kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then finally, justification is based upon the good works of the covenant represent, uh, representatives and it is based upon grace uh, for the members of the covenant of grace, which is really linking it to that covenant concept again. Um, but now, one of the things that you mentioned, and this is a roundup of the chapter, uh, chapter um, is that you know people might feel um, that they believe this, but they actually don't. Um, you mentioned, you know, growing up, you kind of most people I know as Protestants would say, "Yeah, totally, justification, I get it, I'm in," well, you know. Uh, but don't live this way or, or don't work it out. Sadly, very, very easy to uh, be a functional Roman Catholic on this. Yeah. Because Rome confuses justification, which Mike and I have briefly just uh, talked about, with sanctification, mm-hmm. which is a, a wonderful benefit that we get from Christ. But it it's where the Holy Spirit is working inside of us to transform us to be 
more like Christ by mm. slowly taking sin's hold uh, away and by uh, conforming our our works and our deeds to be more like Christ's. Mm -hmm. But that's a slow process, and it's never perfect in this life. Mm. And when you confuse it with justification, uh, it's it's just disastrous because really you're back to a covenant of works like Adam was mm. under where you're you're trying to pull it off yourself. Yeah. Yeah, you're never going to actually mix anything. You're just going to go straight back to a covenant of works. It's just mm -hmm. any kind of attempt to bring any type of works understanding into salvation is a covenant of works at the end of the day. There's no middle ground there. Um, and you say faith and works are not simply two aspects of the same thing. Uh, they're two competing instruments by which we may please God. That's so powerful. I mean, that's it. That's the way you have to consider it. And so functionally, I mean, we've got our quiet times, right? You mentioned that and all of those things that, that you know, we feel we have to bring in there in order to kind of complete this justification idea. And uh, at that point, you know, as Galatians, as Paul uh, addresses um, the Galatians, I mean, you know, we're, we're just being bewitched uh, in some ways. We're, we're moving away from uh, this understanding that, it, you know, we are either justified by Christ or ourselves. Um, what about those who say that um, this is going to lead to um, you know, us almost leading to an antinomian kind of like, no, well, if, if Christ has done everything, then it's just not, it means that we're not going to produce fruit or at least works in the Christian life. Um, what would we say to that? I, I think they're absolutely wrong. Um, if someone's response to hearing justification by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone is to say, oh, well then um, I can sin it up because mm. I've got Jesus's obedience credited to me mm. is not a believer. That's not a uh, the response of someone who's trusting Christ to save them from their sins. Yeah. Yeah. So just at that existential level, it can't happen. <laughs> you know, even, right. even at the theological level, I mean, obviously it's it, all, all that's being shown there is that there is no evidencing there's no fruit. There's no. Uh, there's no reality. It will always. Uh, what does the What do the reformers say? Uh, we say by faith alone, but not never a faith that is alone. Uh, there's always going to be a production of that fruit, uh, testifying to, to our justification. But um, at the same time, even just at that existential level, who could imagine being grateful to anyone for any anything? You know, of of this level. Of any level, you know, I mean, if, if someone does something nice for you, you feel like you need to repay them or you need to do something, you know, and right. um, and so how much more when someone dies for you, you know, you'd want to honor their memory, you'd want to, you wouldn't want to, you know, go against them. And um, how much more when you've been saved by the death of of a king, you know, and, and, and that king is God incarnate. I mean, you know, your life is then bound to. to to be lived for the glory of that king. I mean, that's 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 the. Just, just the way that one would naturally process it, and of course, if as you say, if there's a a true regeneration that's taken place, it will, it will not process it in another way. Um, cool. I mean, that's that brings us to the end of the chapter, more or less. I don't know if, if there's anything that I've left out that you want to just round up on. No, I think we've hit all the important notes. Cool. Hopefully, that's helpful to you. And then next uh, time, we'll start with covenant of works, which you've called in the beginning, covenant and creation. Why didn't you want to use the word works, Chris? <laughs> um, I'm happy calling it a covenant of works, but um, 
I I wouldn't want anyone to think that that's the only place that there's a covenant of works. Totally. And so, uh, yeah. And it's got this biblical theology coolness about it as well. <laughs> so <laughs> stay with us and we'll start with um, that next week. Thanks a million, Chris. Really appreciate the time. It's so awesome to be able to work through this with you. Thank you, Mike. I'm really enjoying it. Mm-hmm.